0: Good evening. My name is Hudson Cheevee, and tonight I'll be preaching from Philippians 2. So please stand there with me. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 11. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, and that that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When I was a kid, my dad gave my siblings and I a test to teach us not to put ourselves first. He put a small, medium, and large cookie in front of all of us, and decided beforehand that whoever chose the smallest cookie would get more afterward. Now, as kids, the choice seemed quite easy because we obviously all wanted the largest cookie. I had no idea that I would be rewarded for taking the smallest one, so I grabbed the biggest one that was left. Even though I knew that I shouldn't take the smallest cookie, I wasn't concerned about those around me as I should have been. This may be a silly example, but aren't Christians often like this today? Don't we often put our own desires before others' desires? Christians are often concerned about themselves. They tend to be prideful and consider themselves as higher than others. In the context of this passage, Paul is calling for the church to be unified and of one mind during trials. But because Christians are so self-focused, the church body is not fully unified. Rather than being self-focused, the passage tonight tells us to put others' needs before our own. This passage not only tells us what to do, but also gives us an example of someone who did put others' needs before his own. Jesus was a perfect example of this. Christ cared so deeply for those around him that he gave up his life on the cross. Even though he is God, Jesus humbled himself, came in the form of man, and served others. Christians are often not following his example in humility because they naturally want themselves to be first. Tonight, let's look at the importance of being humble and putting others first. Paul first tells us in this passage that if you are following the example of Christ, you must be humble. If you would look with me at the end of verse 3, it says, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Lowliness of mind can be an extremely challenging issue in today's culture, as the world tells us to be proud about what we do. However, Paul calls us to have this humility like Christ. Before the New Testament, the word humility was not something that many people strive for. The word conveyed the idea of unfit, and was related to the mentality of a slave. But nonetheless, Paul exhorts us to have this mentality and put ourselves below others. To achieve humility, Paul tells us that we must put off two things. We must put off selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition is putting yourself forward without a spirit of humility. This can mean that when you talk to your friend, you're talking about yourself the entire time without regard to their issues. It is considering yourself as the most important. Humility is putting yourself below others, so we must put off selfish ambition to achieve humility. Conceit is when we have excessive pride in our achievements. We often may do something and be overly proud about it. We might win a game or competition and get very prideful. Conceit also could mean making sure that your status is above all others, and you make them look up to you, rather than being at the same level as them. Conceit is another especially important thing that Paul tells us to put off as part of humility. We're not only told to put off selfish ambition and conceit, but positively to esteem others as better than self. This means that we need to consider and regard those around us as higher than us, One example of someone who did not hold himself in high esteem was George Washington. There was a time when he rode upon some of his soldiers that were trying to move a heavy piece of timber. The corporal stood by, telling the men to heave, but the timber was slightly too heavy for them. Washington asked the corporal, why don't you help them? The corporal didn't recognize who this was and said, me? Why, I'm a corporal. The corporal thought of himself higher than those around him and didn't think he needed to help them. Washington then humbly dismounted from his horse and helped the soldiers heave the timber into place. Although Washington was the commander-in-chief, he still helped the men with the timber. Christians today are often proud like the corporal and think they're better than those around them and that they do not need to help and serve them. However, we need to think like Washington and serve others. Although Washington was a good example at times, he is not, however, the finest example of humility. The ultimate example of this type of humility is Jesus Christ. According to verses 6 and 7, he is equal with God, yet he humbled himself as a bondservant and came in the form of a man. This passage is often referred to as a kenosis passage. I'll let Pastor Drew speak more in depth on the Greek word kenosis at another time. <laughs> but the basics are that Christ set aside some of who he was in order to serve. Jesus was at the same level as God, yet he humbled himself below God to be at the level of men. He then humbled himself again below men to be a bondservant of men. A bondservant is defined as a person bound in service without wages. Jesus was perfect, yet he came and served sinners. In John 13, 1-17, Jesus shows this as he washes the disciples' feet. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus tells us that like he washed the disciples' feet, we also should wash each other's feet. Washing each other's feet means humbling yourself and esteeming others as better. Being humble can be hard, but we need to follow Christ's example nonetheless. Pride is a constant problem in today's world as part of our sinful human nature. Paul states that Christians must put off pride and put ourselves below others. This might mean picking up the 10 feet around you after church or helping a friend or neighbor move. We need to stay humble like Jesus and be servants to others rather than treating them like servants. In verse 3, Paul states that Christians must always be humble. This leads him to his second statement in verse 4 that following the example of Christ, you must put others' needs before your own. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 4, where Paul says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Don't Christians tend to put their own needs first today and be mostly concerned about themselves? We We might not even realize it, but in today's world, Christians are so often swept up in their own thoughts and concerns. Some Christians are overly concerned about how they look. But Paul states that we must always look out for the interests of others. This means that we are fellowshipping with church members instead of leaving right after church to hit the buffet line. When we're around other people, we should be spending time with them rather than on Instagram or texting other friends. We might have to put aside something that we like for the benefit of others. Putting others' needs before your own means setting aside time to spend with them and sympathizing with them. Romans 12, 10-13 says, "...be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. This isn't looking out for the needs of others over our own. I don't know it is. I'm a deer hunter, and I know that deer don't always put the needs of their offspring above their own. If a predator walks up to a doe with her fawns, she'll leave the fawns where they are and run. Despite caring for her fawns, a doe will flee to protect herself rather than protect her young. She cares more about her own interests and in safety than the interests of her offspring. Like the doe, Christians today often care more about their own needs than the needs of others. We may pretend to care about them, but when hard things come, our interests come before theirs, and we leave them. Can you think of anyone that you've put on the back burner because you were giving the time to yourself? We are naturally like the dough and only think of ourselves. One commentator said it this way Preoccupation with yourself is sin. Think about that again. Preoccupation with yourself is sin. We're often preoccupied with what we need instead of what others need. And because we're so preoccupied with ourselves, We may not even be aware of many of the difficulties that others around us are facing. In fact, we may not even want to know the difficulties that people are facing, because it would give us more guilt for being so preoccupied with ourselves. In the second part of verse four, Paul tells us that in addition to looking out for our own interests, we must also look out for the interests of others. We must actively take parts in the lives of other people. We should sympathize with those who are going through trials and rejoice with those who have come out of them. And we need to not ignore those with needs around us because we think our needs are more important. Christ was a perfect example of putting others' needs before his own. We're told in verse eight that he was obedient even to death on the cross. Even though he didn't deserve to die, Jesus gave up his life for the needs of man. He cared so much for the interests of others that he was willing to die on the cross to give us salvation. If you see any brother or sister in Christ with any need, you are called to go and help them. When God brings someone to mind, are you mindful of them? Whatever you do, you must always be considering what is best for those around you. And maybe you can't do a lot to help, but whatever you can do, you must do. So in conclusion, just as Christ humbled himself and cared for those around him, so should we. Our goal today should be to avoid being prideful and self-centered. At the beginning, I illustrated the small, medium, and large cookies. Remember that my father decided that whoever took the smallest cookie would get more afterward. Well, like I said, it wasn't me, but this person did get rewarded for taking a small cookie. In a similar way, God also rewarded Jesus for being humble. If you look with me at verse 9, it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. As God exalted Jesus for being humble, he will exalt us for our humility as well. Remember the words of Christ, the last will be first, and the first last. If we are humble today, we will have rewards in heaven. Jesus died on the cross, putting others' needs before his own. He humbly took the small cookie, if you will, and genuinely cared for the interests of those around him. Are any of you willing to take the small cookie as well, and give up things for those around you? Will you consider putting your own needs last, My challenge to you this week is to humble yourself and put others' needs first, no matter how difficult it may be. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for letting us gather here tonight and learn more about you. Thank you for giving us salvation when your son humbly died on the cross for our sins. I pray that as we go out, we will be servants to others. Help us to esteem others as better and ourselves as lower. Give each one of us the courage to take the small cookie the next week and serve others like Christ. I ask all these scenes in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Hi, my name is Kevin Womble, and tonight I'll be preaching from Romans 5. So if you turn there now. Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So I've done a lot of construction projects with my dad now, one of the biggest projects we ever did was restoring an old woodshed of ours back when we lived in Texas. It was falling apart, the metal on the sides was rusting, and since we were about to move, we decided we should probably fix it up and just make it look a lot nicer. So the thing about this job was that it required a lot of tools. We had to have crowbars to pry off the metal, uh, on the sides of the shed, hammers to get the nails out of the boards, as well as screwdrivers to put in a new floor, as well as a drill to put in the bolts in the metal ceiling. So what would have happened if we had been lacking one of these tools? Could we have pried off the old metal with a screwdriver? Or put on the new roof of a crowbar? The answer is yes. It would have been possible to complete the project while lacking one of the tools needed. However, the job would have been much harder and would have not been completed nearly as well. See, in Romans 5, Paul presents a tool that many Christians lack. Christians lack the joy of the Lord. So often, Christians go through life without rejoicing in the Lord. They go through life just facing situations and challenges as they come and not responding with joy to them. Even worse, they may even face life with an attitude of dejection and joylessness. However, in Romans 5, Paul shows us why we have every reason to rejoice. Because you have been blessed, you must rejoice. So look with me at verse 1. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So first we'll see your relationship with God has been restored. So the first word in this passage is therefore. So therefore is a word that ties to whatever he said before. So Paul is tying what he's already said to what he said in the first four chapters of Romans. So in fact, the whole first phrase, therefore having been justified by faith, ties back to Romans 1 through 4. So in the previous chapters, Paul's been showing that our justification comes through faith in Christ alone. Justification is not to achieve through anything we have done. So in the first phrase of this verse, Paul is transitioning from our justification to the results of our justification. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because we sinned against God, everything we were was totally opposed to everything he is. We were in eternal conflict, eternal war. And nothing we could do could bridge the gap between us. However, because Christ died on the cross, we have a way, we have an access to Christ. It says we have peace with God. Now, this peace is incredible. In our culture today, peace is used as a different context than it is in this verse. For example, after World War II, we were declared that we were at peace with Germany. That doesn't mean we like Germany very much. It just meant we weren't actively trying to destroy one another. However, the Greek word used for peace here is the Greek word irene, which comes from the Greek word Iro, which means to join. So essentially what Paul is saying in this passage is, it's not that the peace we have is that we just aren't actively fighting. We are joined together. We have an intimate and close relationship with God because of Christ and what he did on the cross, dying for our sins. So our relationship with God has been restored. But our justification is even more results than just having peace with God. Continuing on into verse 2, we'll see that our relationship with God is secure. So if you look at me for the first part of verse 2, he says, Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So in verse 2, Paul is moved from talking about what has already occurred in our lives as believers. If you tonight are saved, you have peace with God. So Paul now transitions into what we are currently experiencing. See, through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, we have access to God's grace. God's mercy is what spared us from hell by sending a perfect man to die on the cross for our sins. However, God's grace is what gives us free and unconditional access to heaven. Through God's grace, we can look forward to an eternal relationship with Christ. So Paul says that we stand in this grace. In this passage, stand has a much stronger context than the way we use it. If I was to say... I'm standing here, that just means I am currently standing up here. However, if someone tried to come and shove me over, I would probably lose my balance and probably fall. I am not secure. However, in this passage, standing carries a feeling of security. We are secure in God's grace, which means our relationship with God is secure. If someone was to ask you why you should be allowed into heaven, your only defense is that you stand in God's grace. You have nothing else that you can stand on. Without his grace, you have nothing. However, this grace is, so, is secure, so we can stand in it. So not only do we have peace and security in our relationship with God, but in the next part of verse 2, we'll see that your relationship with God has a future. So in the second part of verse 2, Paul says, And rejoice in the hope of glory of God. So Paul is now speaking about what we have one day to look forward to. One day, each Christian here will be taken to heaven, where we will be glorified with Christ. While this future glorification has not yet happened, we can look forward to it, hope for it. So The hope used here is much more secure than how we use it. When I say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, I have no assurance that it will not rain tomorrow. I'm just communicating that it would be really nice if there was no rain tomorrow. However, in this passage, our hope is certain. And as Christians, we know that one day we will go to live with Christ forever. So in these first two verses, Paul is taking us through the past, present, and future Of our justification. Our relationship with God is restored. Our salvation is secure, and we have the hope of future glorification with God. So, what should our response be to these truths? Rejoice. Paul states in verse 2 that we rejoice in this hope. The proper response to being saved is that we should rejoice at all times. We have an eternal relationship through Christ's work on the cross, a relationship that can never be taken away. The truth that we have been justified is where the joy of the Lord stems from. Only believers can experience the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord comes from being justified, having an eternal relationship with God, and being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, all of which are consequences of sanctification. So from these verses, how should you live your life? You should spend it rejoicing. We should be living testimonies of the work that Christ has done in our lives. When you meet someone for the first time, they should immediately see that there's something different about you. They should see that we have something special inside us. And this thing is the joy of the Lord. But not only should you rejoice because you've been blessed, but as we carry on in the next section, we'll also see that you must rejoice because you have been blessed with trials. In verse 3, Paul says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character And character, hope. So in verse 3, Paul says something that seems ludicrous at first. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. What? Aren't tribulations painful? Aren't they horrible things? Yes. Trials are difficult and painful to go through. But Paul backs up his claim in the next two verses by showing what our trials produce. First off, trials produce perseverance or patience. This perseverance carries the idea of being able to be under great pressure without succumbing. When you face trials, your perseverance is strengthened. And this strengthened perseverance allows facing even greater trials in your life without succumbing to them. However, trials do not just produce perseverance. Through our strength and perseverance, we produce character. Now, when Paul says perseverance produces character, he doesn't mean that, oh, we finally have some character. Everybody has some kind of character. No, when Paul says that perseverance produces character, he means that our character is tested and tried and hopefully strengthened. Now, ultimately, through producing perseverance and character, trials produce hope. Just like in verse 2, the hope here is a deep assurance of something. This hope is a confidence that God is always with the believer and that he will be with them when they face trials. If you talk to firm believers who have faced great trials... You might expect them to be downcast because of everything they have faced. They have gone through through so much in their life, so many hard things. However, oftentimes these are the people who are most filled with joy, the joy of the Lord. They know that God is with them through their trials, and they view these trials as blessings, not curses. They have seen how Christ has been faithful to them, fulfilling them with joy. So while trials are never pleasant, they are necessary because of what they produce. And because of these fruits, we can view trials as blessings and rejoice when we face them. So similar to this truth is what happens when you begin working out. Back in July of last year, I began to get serious about working out and strengthening my body. I hated it. The workouts were always unpleasant and I always felt exhausted. Now, the people that tell you that workouts will get easier over time, well, they're lying to you. (laughs) I still hate working out, almost a year later. However, what has kept me going, what has kept me waking up and working out each morning is the results that I'm seeing in my personal life. I have more energy, I'm stronger, and I feel much better than I did before I was working out. While working out itself is not pleasant, the results more than make up for the discomfort faced while actually working out. This is the same kind of thing that Paul is talking about when he says we rejoice in our trials. You can't just wake up one day and decide, Oh, today I'm going to strengthen my perseverance. By the end of the day, my perseverance will be much stronger, no matter what I do. Now, that's not how it works. The only way your perseverance, your character, and your hope are produced and strengthened is through trials. Ultimately, the trials in a Christian's life produce hope and assurance that Christ will always be with you and never forsake you. So Paul goes on to explain our hope even more as we move into the next verse, which shows us the security of our hope. So in verse 5, Paul says, Now hope does not disappoint." Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, the hope that is produced through trials will never disappoint. If you are saved, you have God's love in your heart through the Holy Spirit who's indwelling inside you. God's love assures us that our hope will never disappoint because we are grounded in our Savior who loves us. See, we know that what God says is true because He never changes. Thus, our hope is secure meaning our hope will never disappoint. So in these first five verses of Romans 5, Paul presents two blessings that every believer experiences, no matter what the, who they are and what stage of life they are in. You might be thinking that God has not blessed you and has even forgotten you. That's not at all the case. You have peace with God. You have security in your relationship with God. You have the hope that you will one day be glorified with Christ, and you can rejoice in your trials because of the hope produced from them. So how should these trials affect your everyday life? The joy the Lord should shine through you no matter what situation you are facing. One of the hardest things anyone will ever face is the death of a loved one. But when you're going through the situation, you have the opportunity, the blessing to be a testimony for Christ. You can decide, I will rejoice even though facing this situation because I have a hope and I can show people that I have this hope people will see you and they'll wonder why are you not destroyed because of this trial how can you have joy in this trial but you can do this because you are indwelt with the joy of the lord so no matter what you face in your life you are commanded to rejoice as christians we have been blessed abundantly and we have no excuse not to rejoice i started tonight by talking about restoring an old woodshed and the tools required to complete that job Well, the job would have been possible without all the right tools. It would have been much harder to complete and would not have been done as well. Our lives are the same way. God has designed us to rejoice. Are you going to choose to rejoice in the hard things faced in your life? Are you going to use the wrong tool and walk through life without rejoicing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us so abundantly, given us so much that we don't deserve. And I pray that each and every one of us, as we go out from here today, would live and rejoice in you, because they know that you have, you have blessed them, and we have a hope because of you. Pray that today and this week, that each of us would be passionate about rejoicing in every situation we face, no matter how hard it is. In your son's name I pray, amen.
2: Hello, my name is Ryan Smith, and tonight I'll be preaching out of Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> I'm sure everyone in this room is familiar with the game of football. Some of you probably love it, and some of you could care less about it. But how many of you would enjoy going to see a football game? It's a fun event. You go, you watch the game, cheer when your team makes a touchdown, talk to other people who support the same team, and when the game is over, you go home and continue with regular life. If someone were to come up to me and offer me a free ticket to an NFL game, I would be excited. I'm sure many of you would be as well. But how excited would we be if we were offered the opportunity to play in an NFL game? I personally would be terrified, because I'd be killed in the first five minutes. (laughs) I'm sure we can all agree that it's a lot more fun to watch an NFL game than it would be to play in one. But unfortunately, we often have the same mentality towards church. We cheer for our local church, we attend all the services or watch them online, but we often fail to be active participants. As Christians, we often prefer the sidelines. Look with me at Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10, as we see what Paul says about service. Let him who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap eternal life and let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart therefore as we have opportunity let us do good to all especially to those who have the household of faith now the biblical principles in these verses are relatively self-explanatory I don't think many of us are farmers but we all know if you plant a tomato then the tomato plants going to grow the more seeds you plant the more plants will grow and the more tomatoes you will get these same basic principles of farming apply to our relationships with each other if you act with kindness towards others, you engender kindness in return. If you, if you act selfishly, you invite reciprocation. And we are familiar with the charge to treat others as we want to be treated, but here Paul states that it is especially important to observe this principle with regard to our pastors and our teachers. That especially, uh, look with me again at verses 6 through 7. "'Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches.'" Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. So we're supposed to share every good thing with our pastors and teachers. What does that mean? I think for most of us, when we hear this verse, our minds automatically go to tithing, And while that, that is an, a clear application of Galatians :6, 6, 6, there's more to it. Do we share our time with our teachers and our pastors? What about our prayers? Harkening back to the football analogy, I, I doubt I'm alone in this, but as soon as the game's over, I turn it off. I don't care at all about the after-game show when they, the reporters flood the field and they interview all the coaches and the players. I don't care. <laughs> as, soon as, the, as soon as the game's over, I turn it off. And again, unfortunately, we treat church often the same way. And as soon as the service is over, like Hudson said, we make a beeline for the buffet line. How often do we take the time to come up to our pastors and our teachers and ask how they're doing, ask if we can pray for them, take them out to lunch, help them with that home project they've been trying to get to for forever but never have the time? God sees and rewards such service. And because we reap what we sow, we must serve our teachers by sharing every good thing with them. Look with me now at verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, For in due season, we will reap if we do not lose heart. Uh, Like Kevin, this year was the first year that I started consistently running. And I discovered that one of the worst things when you've just started running is having a group of friends who have run cross-country for years. I'd be sitting with them, hanging out, and they'd be telling me about their uh, their training routines, what they do, uh, how fast they were able to run the last race, and I'll just be sitting there in the corner going, I couldn't run that fast that far if my life depended on it. And as time went on, I was just barely getting any better at all. It's very discouraging to run for months and only cut, eh, 30 seconds off your time. It seemed useless. No matter how hard I tried, I was not getting the results I wanted. I couldn't compare to my friends. And yet, though I was still a long way from my goal and a long way from what my friends could do, I had come a long way from where I started. I might not have been able to run as fast or as far as my friends, but I could certainly run much faster and farther than I would ever been able to before. Though I couldn't see it easily, running was having an effect on me. It was slow and it was subtle, but constantly running was producing results. And the same thing can happen when we serve others. Our service may seem small compared to the service of others. Our service may not appear to accomplish much at all, and our perseverance may seem to have minuscule results, if any. But we must continue to serve even when it seems useless. As verse 9 tells us, our service will have results. They may not be the results we were looking for or the ones we wanted, and they may not come as quickly as we want them to, but God will reward those who serve him and his children. Once again in verse 9, Paul points to the example of reaping and sowing. An apple tree takes much longer to grow than a tomato plant, but both, in the end, produce fruit, even if one takes much longer to do so. And because we will reap what we sow, we must continue to serve even when it seems useless. Look with me once again at verse 9 and 10. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is a principle that God has been teaching me personally lately, and I have to admit I've been a very slow learner. There have been many mornings where I'll be trying to do my devotions and focus on my prayer, and all my school and all the responsibilities that I have that day are just swimming around in the, in the head, distracting me. And I'll be trying to pray, you know, dear God, oh, I forgot about that English project I've got today. Uh, yes, please help me to serve my family and you today. Yeah, that statistics project is due here soon, too. Oh, yes, please help me serve you and my family. In Jesus' name, amen. And off to work I go. About five minutes later, my little sister will walk into the room. Hey, Ryan, I'm sorry to bother you. Could you help me? just understand how to do this worksheet real fast. Not now, not now. I've got too much work to do. Sorry, I can't help you right now. I just asked God for an opportunity to serve him and my family. And as soon as the opportunity came, I threw it away because it was inconvenient. As Christians, we're told to serve everyone whenever we have the chance, not just at church, but in our homes and in public. This is difficult because we would like to confine our service to prearranged times. You know, um, I'll help that family move and then I'm done for two months. Or, yeah, I'll spend about two hours with my family this weekend and I should be set for a while. Or, yeah, I'll stay late tonight and help my coworker who's behind, but this is the last time I'll do it. How many opportunities to serve do we turn down? How often do we forget that no service is truly thankless? Verse ten states That therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who have the household of faith. God will reward us for our service or the lack thereof. And because of that, we must serve whenever and however we can. I think it's strange whenever I'm talking to someone and they'll say something along the lines of, hey, did you see the game last night? We won the championship. We? He didn't play in the game, why do you include himself? He wasn't even a part of the team. But as Christians, we are on God's team. We are players in the game. And because of that, we have the responsibility and the privilege to serve in God's church and in God's world. As Christians, it's easy to find ourselves on the sidelines. It's safe, it's comfortable, and a whole lot more fun. But as we see in Galatians 6, God knows our actions. And he will repay us either for our service or for our apathy. And because of this, we are called to stay off the sidelines and to faithfully and actively serve whenever and wherever we get the chance. Please pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for giving us the chance to come here and meet together. I thank you for giving me and my peers the opportunity to worship you in this way. Lord, we pray that as we go out tonight you would give us the strength to serve as you have called us to serve whenever we get the chance, no matter how inconvenient it may be, that you would give us hearts and minds to serve and to rejoice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.